but also we're going one step further and actually kind of speaking to aspiring lawyers about personal development and how they can grow as people first before they you know go straight into figuring out how to be a lawyer hello everyone and welcome to the student lawyer podcast series whether you're at school sixth form university thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This podcast is brought to you by Feed Ignite. Welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. My name's Camilla and I'm an LPC student and future trainee solicitor and I'm going to be your host for today. In today's episode, I'm joined by Zenat Islam. Zenat is a barrister specialising in public inquiries, criminal defence and who has a particular interest in cases engaging public international law and human rights. Zenat takes an active role in widening access to the legal profession and recently won the highly commended award in the UK Chambers Bar Awards 2019 for outstanding contribution to diversity and inclusion future leader. Diversity and inclusion at the bar is the topic of today's discussion and we're also going to be discussing one of Zenat's current projects called Redefine Learning for Lawyers. So without further ado, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast, Zenat. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So I'm really excited to be recording this episode because diversity and inclusion in the legal profession is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, But before we get right into that, would you mind telling the listeners a little little bit about you and your career journey? Yeah, no problem. So I'm a barrister. I was called to the bar in 2013. um, And that's also when I started my 18 month pupillage in a criminal defence set. So my pupillage was 18 months long. uh, And I finished that in March 2015. So I've been in practice about six, seven years now. Um, I trained in criminal defence. And more recently, I've moved into public law. Uh, So that's what I'm doing at the moment. But in terms of my journey to the bar, so I'm from Birmingham. I was born and brought up in Birmingham. I am Bangladeshi uh, heritage. Uh, My parents came to the UK in the 60s and 70s, uh, much like many other kind of economic migrants in that time. And my dad came over really to support his family back home and he wasn't able to finish his education. Um, but him and my mom had five girls, uh, which, um, so in the Asian community, in a lot of the Asian community, <laughs> there is, um, there is a preference for many for having sons. And my mom kind of got a lot of pressure about the fact that she only had daughters and I'm the youngest of five girls, as I said. So they kind of obviously gave up by the time they got to right. me. Um, but what I should say is, although that was kind of the wider cultural expectation, my parents were very much pioneers in kind of championing their daughters and wanting the best for them in terms of education and opportunities and all the things that they never had. Um, so it's kind of amidst that background, really, that I kind of found my journey to the bar. I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer from quite early on even as early as, I think, probably aged 11, 12. Wow. Um, Yeah, so a a long time. And um, I think for my parents, I mean, they 
as with many parents, they, they try and do what's best for you. So they put me forward for the 11 plus. I flopped that. So I ended up at the uh, local girls school, which um, doesn't have a reputation for being that great. I think it might have improved now. But um, that's kind of where my journey started. And I muddled, muddled through, actually quite enjoyed school. I was one of those kids that was a little bit naughty, but got the grades. So I got away with it. That's um, good. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. And then I guess I went on to college and at that point I was deciding what universities that I would go for. And because I, uh, had, you know, I was getting decent grades and things like that. I was encouraged by kind of tutors and other people around me that I should consider Oxbridge, applying to Oxbridge. But I, it's weird because I must have only been like 17, 18, but even then I kind of knew myself enough to know that that wasn't really the kind of institution that I wanted to go to. Um, and that, you know, although I knew that that was kind of revered and it's regarded as really prestigious and maybe that would have helped in my legal career, it was almost a bit like having reservations about that's not somewhere really I would fit in. And it's interesting because as things have progressed through my career, it's very much been about challenging what we think or believe kind of the elite is or what what excellence means and I'm really passionate about actually redefining what we think excellence is because I am a firm believer that there is so much talent in other universities that you know often goes under the radar just because they're not at these big names definitely Um, yeah, and I think I mean, I'm pleased to see that that's kind of changing a little bit more now. But even the 18-year-old me kind of had a little bit of that vibe. And gladly, I went to Warwick, which was my first choice. Um, had a great three years there. Uh, initially, was kind of just, I think in my first year, I scraped to 2-1, just about. Like, I got a 60. And everybody used to tell me, you know, you just need to get a 2-1. You just need to get a 2-1. And I didn't really understand what that actually meant back in them days because I remember you know it was such a jump from college I don't know if you 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 experienced that but just a huge jump from A-levels into university and everybody around me being so bright being from all these like international schools private schools and I was like oh my god what on earth am I doing here (laughs) how am I gonna survive So first year was very much like finding my feet. And then, yeah, so when I got this like average of a 60, I was like pretty chuffed. Um, But as things progressed into second year and third year, I think I found my flow. I gained confidence, um, you know, and with all of that, actually, and I still don't really know how it happened, but I actually ended up averaging a first at the end of my second year, the highest first in my year. Oh, wow, brilliant. I know it was a bit balmy. I remember getting an email being like, what the heck? How on earth has that happened? And I ended up graduating, as I said, at the top of my year as well. So I, I say that because I never believed that I could do that. Myself. Like, I didn't even believe that. I didn't even believe that I could achieve that. And it was only when I began to kind of realize in my second year, oh, hold it, Z, maybe you can achieve in this way. Maybe you can aim for more than this kind of arbitrary grade you've just been told to try and aim for and and you'll be fine um and I guess that story the reason why I share it is because you know there'll be people that come from similar backgrounds to my own you know modest background um migrant parents gone to not very good schools and actually I think a lot of the time we just need to believe in ourselves a bit more 
And it's with that that actually we find what our true potential is. And I think it was that three years at Warwick that really kind of provided the platform, I guess, to my career at the bar and allowed me to secure pupillage and things like that. I did do a master's and stuff before I started pupillage because I was a bit of a nerd. Um, <laughs> and, <a> reason. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I really just wanted to, I did it in public international law and I was really interested in that. And I came to London from Birmingham to, to study that at the LSE and then got my pupillage offer first time round, which again was another surprise. Well, that's brilliant. And, yeah, and actually, I went, you know, in the context of diversity and inclusion, it's really interesting because now that obviously I'm in the profession, I see a lot of people and meet a lot of people that are struggling to access the career and it yeah. and it makes me reflect on my own journey and it's interesting because I'm one of those that somehow got through the net if you like and when I think about why that is I think it really probably was you know having that first having those awards and whatever that comes with that that means that I ticked those boxes almost so it did make it easier for me but then when I've been in the profession, I found that the barriers for me have begun to actually materialise as a barrister, which is actually a bit ironic. And perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But yeah, it was, again, it's just, it's just one of those things. So pupillage is, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably, it was probably the most challenging 18 months of my life in a lot of ways. But, um, but yes, that's kind of my journey to being a barrister. I guess I should say stuff about, um, you know, joining Inns of Court and getting a scholarship, um, which allowed me to pay for my BPTC, otherwise I wouldn't be able to do it. That's um, it, expensive, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's massively inaccessible. I've got massive issues with, you know, how these courses are priced and, you know, they make it even more difficult than it already is. But yeah, so that's kind of how I got to where I am. And here I am now, seven years in. Thank, well, thank you so much for sharing. It's, it's such an interesting journey and I really kind of like how you um, kind of progress from um, first year to really finding your feet and being able to share your story and, and give back is really inspiring. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on. So one of the reasons that I wanted to speak to you was because of your, uh, your new initiative, which is Learning for Lawyers Redefined. Um, so would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about that project and what it involves? Yeah, thank you. Um, so Redefined Learning for Lawyers was a project that actually started out as a little bit of a lockdown project. And I'm sure many people um, have, you know, kept themselves busy over lockdown and tried to make themselves useful. And that's kind of where it came from for me. Um, and it actually ended up being a way where I've centralised a lot of the kind of outreach and mentorship type work that I've been doing over the years anyway. Um, but what we're kind of doing through the project is a series of online masterclasses and webinars and we're kind of targeting aspiring lawyers from underrepresented backgrounds and we're emphasizing professional development so all of the usual kind of legal skills and stuff like that but also we're going one step further and actually kind of speaking to aspiring lawyers about personal development and how they can grow as people first before they you know go straight into figuring out how to be a lawyer so so far we've done um we've done five sessions so far and they've been really interesting because i guess what what i'm trying to do through the project is kind of almost it's it's supposed to exist as a challenge to what we always see when we think about legal events legal panels 
you know, I've met so many aspiring lawyers from different backgrounds that still tell me that it's impossible to get work experience, many pupillages, or just to even meet lawyers to have a conversation. And for me, I've just been reflecting and thinking, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. Clearly something is still very wrong if, you know, people from everyday different backgrounds, different walks of life still can't access this type of information just to even try and get their foot in the door. So it's really targeted at that and that's kind of the reason behind it. And it's kind of, I just, I just, yeah, one thing I can't stand about the profession is how elitist it still is and how inaccessible it is. And I guess this is my way of trying to create a space for people that might not always feel like they fit the traditional mould or they're a bit apprehensive when they're at these legal events or they lack legal networks and opportunities. It's my way of trying to create a space for those types of people. Great. So, I mean, you know, from from what I've heard, the bar is, um, you know, very traditional in that sense. And it, you know, compared to maybe solicitors firms, it hasn't really quite come as far. I hope that's fair for me to say. Um, So, yeah, I think this project is fantastic. What was the main reason for deciding to start the project? Yeah. Yeah, I guess the main reason really was to democratise information and access to networks and opportunities for everybody rather than them just being kind of um, centralised in a place for just certain people and just trying to make other people from other backgrounds have access to this information without it being as difficult as it seemed to be. So as I said, it's, you know, particularly targeted at aspiring lawyers from the groups that are traditionally excluded from the profession. And I should make it clear that it's not because these people aren't worthy of a place, but as I said, because the profession just is still so inaccessible in so many ways. Um, And I can, as I say, I'm a barrister, so I can only speak for the bar at least, but one example of that which really troubles me is the BSB statistics um, from the end of 2019 um, talk about different stats, different students and, and things like that. And they, one of the statistics they report is that 44% of white graduates had started pupillage compared to 23% of graduates from BAME backgrounds, but they both had the same degree classification and the same grade at bar school. And when I read that, I was just like, that's absolutely, like, that's, to me, that's wild. Like, how can we get two people that on paper, merit-wise, are exactly the same in terms of academia, but such a differentiation in who's getting pupillage? And for me, what that tells me is that there is still something very clearly fundamentally wrong with the current system and it does need to change. And so for me, this project is all about, as I mentioned, creating this space for these types of people, the people that are good enough that just aren't getting in by virtue of who they are, because that is what it is, sadly. And I think sometimes we need to have honest and candid conversations rather than trying to gloss over things. Um, And that's another thing that this project is about, um, you know, we do things differently. And I think maybe you'll come on to that in your next question. But it's just about kind of challenging the status quo, turning things on their head a little bit, you know, dealing with things candidly, saying it how it is. Definitely. Yeah, those statistics are just really unexplainable. And 
I mean, I don't really know too much about the um, recruitment process at the bar, but I mean, is that down to perhaps things not being CV blind? I wonder if, do, do you happen to know if Chambers recruit I think, blind? I think Chambers def- definitely have different policies. Yeah. And I think in more recent years, um, they are now beginning to implement an, a, you know, names being emitted off. Um, and other details like that. So that's obviously a step in the right direction. But for some chambers and some organisations more generally, that is a very recent step. So in recent years, you know, people will still be looking at applications that have everyone's, you know, obviously their names on there. And sadly, maybe that is, you know, that is a factor. I'd be really interested in in knowing, you know, what people's statistics, what organisations statistics are from application to interview through till you know interview through to offer um it'd be really interesting because I know some firms do that and it would be really interesting to see that across chambers and actually what those statistics look like yes I think that that's a really good idea how is this project different to other diversity initiatives and what does redefined relate to yeah, so I kind of touched on it a little bit about us trying to be this kind of little challenging mini project. But I guess what we're doing is through the events, we specifically curate diverse, representative and varied panels of contributors, people that actually represent the experiences more realistically of the type of people that we're trying to encourage to attend our events. And it's also to amplify the voices and experiences of lawyers that have had alternative journeys and that perhaps their journeys aren't always spotlighted. We don't always hear from those types of lawyers necessarily. Um, and, in, and in that way, what we're doing is challenging the norm when it comes to what a mainstream legal event would look like. So we're not doing traditional old white male Oxbridge types. We're deliberately being different in that sense. Um, and I think one of the real things that I'm trying to achieve through this project is also from a understanding that legal work experience and many pupillages um, still remain a privilege for many, that they just can't access it. And we're trying to bring that same level of insight and exposure online so other people that are looking to develop their experience can do so without facing those constant barriers to the profession. I guess we're also different um, for what I touched on a little bit earlier on. Yes, we're focusing on professional development, so the usual skills development, you know, CVs, applications, advocacy. But we're also doing personal development sessions. So, for example, one of our uh, uh, sessions we've had so far was with a life coach who did a workshop on confidence and how to be your own best advocate. Fantastic. So, yeah, and I think that kind of training is actually really useful. And it's something that I found much later on in my kind of career. And I think that that kind of emphasis earlier on would actually put aspiring lawyers in much a much more positive stead because they'd be so confident in themselves that when they were entering a profession that for most of us feels alien, actually you're more confident on navigating it on your own terms. Um The other thing that we're doing a little bit differently is through our sessions, we're inviting um, voluntary donations, Um, not not large ones, just small ones to contribute to join the session. And we're donating those to different charities and causes. And the idea behind that is really to kind of nurture this pro bono collective community spirit and remembering that actually the core of being a lawyer is to serve and that being a lawyer or an aspiring lawyer in and of itself is a privilege and 
almost as a reminder of what should we be doing with our platform as lawyers? What more can we be doing for the community around us? Wow, I, I really like that. It's, you know, it's really unique. I haven't seen any other sort of models do that. And I think that's fantastic and really inspiring that you're, you know, firstly, that you set up this project. And then secondly, that you're kind of using it as a vehicle to give back to the community. I think that's it's so brilliant. Thank you. And so what do you think the key issues are in relation to diversity at the bar and in the legal sector as a whole? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's quite a big question. <laughs> a big question. But, uh, yeah, I guess some of the issues that I think um, we face are obviously the obvious ones. So lack of representation from certain backgrounds and things like that in organisations, whether it's firms, whether it's chambers. Yeah. Um, what I also think the big issue is, is that it, at the moment, diversity and inclusion is actually quite a hot topic. It's quite fashionable. It's quite on trend. You know, organisations want to speak about it. But I think for me, what we actually need is um, a bit of a culture shift or a mindset shift in terms of, I don't want diversity and inclusion to just be this kind of tick box compliance type thing which sometimes seems to happen where it's all about okay we need to have x um, amount of people from these different backgrounds in our organization how can we do that because for me that's motivated from a place of compliance for example well we need to comply with our equality duties or our whatever duties which is why we're doing this and it makes it kind of more of a a process thing rather than actually really understanding why is it that we should have representative and diverse organizations to begin with. The other issue I have is that diversity in and of itself isn't sufficient because you can get different people in an organization, but is your environment, is your organization promoting a culture of inclusivity, which allows people to show up as their full selves? Like, can people truly come to work being who they are and bring all of themselves to work? And I think sometimes that's where a lot of legal organisations aren't necessarily doing enough at all. And I think a third issue for me, and I guess it's particularly spotlighted uh, as a result of recent events, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests and things like that, um, I think a lot of organisations are perhaps speaking out about what, what's happened, perhaps they've put a statement out in solidarity, which I guess is a good step in the step forward. But for me, again, the question is, fine, you're saying that you're in solidarity with this cause, but what are you actually doing in your own organisations to address these issues? Like, are you undertaking the review of your own structures, policies and systems, which actually perpetuate these issues such as racism? Because that's what needs to happen. A statement of solidarity without any kind of meaningful engagement with, with the work underneath that isn't, far, isn't enough. Um, and I think that, I think at the moment, the kind of era that we're in, it does provide an opportunity for people to engage in a more meaningful way and I really just want to step away from kind of this you know we need different faces in the system so one of my favorite quotes is from Angela Davis who says something along the lines of you know diversity is just a corporate strategy right. changing the faces of the system will never change the system and whenever I it, uh, that's a paraphrased version of that quote um but it's really interesting for me because it's exactly true. And for me, as somebody that's Asian, what that reminds me of is 
like look at our own prime minister's cabinet at the moment there are asian there are asian representatives in there and the government um i think in one of these interviews recently on the back of something related to covid um and blm said oh you know we do have a representative uh, government that look at our cabinet obviously pointing at you know the handful of people that they might have from minority backgrounds yeah but what I'm not interested in is just bringing these people in just to rubber stamp the status quo like to me that isn't what true representation is those people don't represent me even though they're brown as well do you get what I mean it has to be people that are willing to actually challenge the status quo like are you actually championing the needs of your communities because if you're just going in there and you're just super grateful for a seat at the table of a system which continues to oppress you and your people that isn't changing anything for anyone yeah. um so for me when we talk about dni i actually think the emphasis should be shifting on well why are we even having this conversation to begin with we're having this conversation to begin with because we live in a system which is racist uh, amongst other things and actually the conversations need to be looking at the root. DNI is kind of a symptom, but what about the actual root of the issues? Definitely. You, well, you've raised so many interesting points. Um, one thing that you said in particular that kind of caught my attention was the fact that although the legal profession might be kind of, you know, doing these tick box exercises, but I mean, it's a quote, I can't remember who said it, but diversity and inclusion is not being invited to the party. It's being kind of asked to dance. So it's that... One step further. Um, My sister was writing an essay about um, diversity in the judiciary, and what you said kind of, uh, you know, triggered my sort of memory. Um, When I think it was a study that said that even though you might have people from different backgrounds, like you said, they don't want to upset the status quo. So you know, just having a variety of different people isn't necessarily going to fix the root cause of the of the problem. Um, So yeah, thank you, thank you for raising that. Um, so how do you think the legal sector can address these issues? Yeah, I mean, these are, again, big questions, but I think there are steps that we can all take in the right direction. And in fairness, I think some organisations are beginning to, to grapple with these issues uh, in a more meaningful way. But some examples that I'm particularly passionate about that could, that could really help. So from the access level, so aspiring lawyers level, some of the things that I think we need to be doing is stuff like paid work experience, paid mini pupillages, because at the moment, a lot of organisations still don't. And I think what that does is you're already limiting the types of people that can come and gain that exposure and then potentially apply for a job at your organisation. I think what we also need to do is where there are gaps, whether that's in terms of representation in your organisation, there needs to be targeted outreach work to try and actually engage with those communities and encourage those types of people from, you know, perhaps applying to your organisation or at least giving them the information about what your organisation does. So in this case, in my case, you know, talking about the bar, but going into the schools and the inner cities that you wouldn't normally perhaps go out to, doing specific programmes in chambers for specific schools, specific young people. I think um, even once you've got into the profession, a lot of chambers, depending on the area of law, uh, and I think it is 
obviously the same in law firms, depending again on the area of law, but the funding at training contracts and pupillage level often is very low, especially if you're based in London, which is where I was coming to from Birmingham for mine. And it can mean again, that if you aren't offering a, a deep, like an, an amount that people can actually live on comfortably, again, you're going to be excluding people from joining your area of work. And then you're going to end up by losing diverse talent, retaining diverse talent, um, and we'll end up having the same types of people just constantly on repeat coming through the system. Um, so I think people need to look at their their kind of funding arrangements. And the one other aspect that I think we briefly touched on was even if you've got diverse groups of people in your chambers, are you doing enough to make them feel included? So some examples around that could include having formal well-being policies, you know, having systems in place which allow people to come together and share their concerns, share their issues, um, thinking about what types of social events you do. So one thing that particularly has affected me is I'm not an alcohol drinker. So what that has meant in the profession where the socials, pre-COVID at least, were heavily dominated by, you know, bars and pubs, it would obviously mean that I wasn't getting the same access to networks or meeting the same people. Um, and I think the Law Society actually recently did a report on alcohol-based events and even suggested having alcohol policies, thinking about doing morning events, lunch events. And I thought that was really interesting. I read that, um, I think. For me, it might be, for me, it might be faith-based, but for lots of other people don't want to drink for lots of other reasons. And it's about, you know, that's just one example, but it's just about providing and creating environments where people don't feel left out and I think that's really important especially in a profession which actually it's quite alienating anyway just because it's you know some of it's quite archaic some of the procedures are like you know old school you roll up to the inns of court and it's like oh my god where am I this is like Hogwarts which is cool in a lot of ways but you know what I mean like if it's totally out of your world you obviously feel totally out of your depth I agree yeah so then you just end up wanting to fit in um or and then if you kind of then don't drink, then you might just feel a bit like an outsider. So Yeah, and I think that's definitely been my experience. And I think other people might actually just feel like they've got to conform yeah. and just try and fit in and be a bit like everybody else. And I think for me, I think that's a real shame if people feel like they've got to do that. Um, yeah, so those are a few ideas. I mean, we could go on for ages on that. but yeah. <laughs> one thing that you one thing that you said sort of at the beginning about the unpaid work experience I can't remember if it was last year or the year before but I remember there was like something on legal cheek or or in the news somewhere that one chambers was offering unpaid work experience for six months and it was it was a really ridiculous period of time and I just thought who you know that's just so um that's just not inclusive because who's really going to be able to afford that um, you know, I, I certainly couldn't, and and but that would look great, wouldn't it, on someone's um, applications? And that is really giving someone kind of a leg up yeah. that can actually afford to not You're get totally right. Because I remember even when I was doing my gap year, so this was pre pupillage, um, an opportunity came up to do an internship at the ICTY, one of the International Criminal Law Tribunals. Yeah, which it would have been amazing, like getting to go to the Hague and working in criminal international criminal law which at the time I was super interested in but I just couldn't pursue that opportunity because I was like well how on earth am I going to live out there and fund myself and then what's really interesting now all these years on and I often sit on 
um, pupillage interviews and things like that. And, you know, you see people that have managed to do loads of internships, loads of unpaid work experience. And it's really obvious because obviously a lot of these things are unpaid. Yeah. But then for me, when I see another applicant who actually might not have done loads of internships or voluntary work, but they have, for example, worked through studying, I personally would place the same weight because that to me shows resilience and the fact that they might not have had the opportunities to do unpaid work because that's just not sustainable for lots of us but it equally shows um a a level of resilience and grit so yeah i mean if listeners would like to get involved with um learning for lawyers redefined um how can they do that yeah i mean i'd love to um have people join the project um we're running events we're aiming for every month or um bit more frequent than that Um, we're on linkedin and instagram and you can also find out more about us on our website which is www.redefinedlawyers.com and also what's available on there is the links to the previous five webinars that we've ran so you'll be able to watch those um, and catch up with the various topics that we've done so far fantastic well i will put all those details in the description box of the podcast anyway so if um yeah listeners didn't catch that then they can just go there and um click on the links but thank you so much for joining us today Zina. it's been great to have you on the show and like i said the topic is just um you know one that i really want to share as much as possible so we can try and make a difference and hopefully this episode will go some way towards making a bit of a difference and i'm I'm sure that learning for lawyers definitely will so thank you thank you so much for having me To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. We'd like to thank Felix Knight for producing this podcast today.